This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Welcome to Café Connect, where we bring you the latest research from the University of Aberdeen. In this series, we meet different researchers who will talk about their projects and their relevance to our life. This series is a response to the current social distancing situation. And if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. Please email peru at abdn.ac.uk and our speakers will do their best to answer. Please note, however, that they won't be able to answer any personal or medical questions. This podcast series is part of a wider set of events and activities run by the University of Aberdeen, which seek to connect us with our vast community, both locally and across the globe. In 2020, we celebrate our 525th anniversary, and this series is part of that celebration. Today, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Virtu Solano and Dr. Adam Rove, research fellows at the University of Aberdeen, and Dr. Max Baldassare, who is a lecturer in cellular microbiology. And they will be discussing a historic case of asymptomatic transmission of a disease and the parallels that can be drawn with today's COVID-19 pandemic. I will now hand over to Adam, who will get us started. Hello, Adam. Hi, Barbara. So yeah, so uh, we, our group, we work in the Institute of Medical Sciences at the University of Aberdeen, and we're part of the Cell Biology of Infection Lab. So we are a research team that studies cellular microbiology. So cellular microbiology uh, looks at how individual bacteria interact with the cells of the body and how the body tries to remove the bacteria and what the bacteria does in response to this to try and survive and, and cause disease. So within this area of research, we study pathogens, which are microorganisms that cause disease. And one important bacterial pathogen that we study is called Salmonella. So there are two, two main types of Salmonella that are responsible for making people sick. So Salmonella typhimurium is one that is quite commonly associated with food poisoning. So that's one that uh, quite a lot of people may have heard of. But there's also another salmonella type called salmonella typhi, and this causes a much more serious disease called typhoid fever. Uh, I think Max can tell us a bit more about the history of this disease. Yes, thanks, Adam. In, in fact, actually, in, in this podcast, we'll start with a story that is related to salmonella typhi, and actually it's a story that happened more than 10 years ago. To be precise, it started in the summer of the 900s, exactly 120 years ago. So the story is the story of Mary Mallon, or how uh, was unfortunately renamed by the newspaper at the time, uh, Typhoid Mary. So who was uh, Mary Mallon? Well, she was few things. Um, first of all, she was an Irish woman that has a teenager immigrates in the US. She was a cook apparently a very good one. Uh, and between 1897 and 1906, she worked in eight wealthy uh, New Yorkers families. But most important for our story for today, um, she was at the age of 37 in 1906, uh, the first person in North America to be identified as healthy carrier of um, typhoid fever. So 
you mentioned typhoid fever. So since it's so important for our story, I think we can learn something uh, a little bit more about this, uh, this disease. Virtu, can you tell us something about the disease? Uh, well, typhoid fever is a disease that, believe it or not, has a very long history on human lives, and particularly during the 19th century, it swept through streets of London, uh, New York, and other large cities. And as you can imagine, it was taking the lives of rich and poor alike. And the, the way we acquire this disease is by simply ingesting water or food that is contaminating with uh, this bacterium that Adam was telling us about, that is called Salmonella typhi. And as Adam says, it's quite different from the other Salmonella that we all know that causes this uh, food poisoning or Salmonellosis. So if you, if you think of how the cities were in the past, very overcrowded and dirty, you can imagine how easy it was for a disease like this one to spread. So back then, typhoid fever was a very common and a very feared disease. But we don't need to go so far back in time to find typhoid outbreaks. Um, I'm sure that you know that quite recently and exactly 56 years ago, Aberdeen suffered an outbreak of typhoid. And there are a lot of people in the city who still remember what it feels to be in a lockdown. So to give you a little bit more of information about this disease, the symptoms of typhoid fever are not very specific and include high fever, headache, general pain, constipation or diarrhea, and a skin rash sometimes. So in addition, people that don't get a treatment uh, in time can die. But the, the threat from typhoid doesn't end when the symptoms disappear. And I think this brings us back to your story, Max. Yes, I was, as I was saying, in fact, in 1906, Mary Marlon, or typhoid Mary, as, as I said, was, she was renamed, was identified as a typhoid, typhoid fever carrier. But how she was identified? Well, at the time, they did have tests to detect Salmonella typhi, so they were able, able to, to detect and um, identify the, the, the bacteria. However, Mary Mullen wasn't found through what today we'll call a screen, um, a mass screen program, but um, actually through what is more similar to a police investigation than a scientific investigation. In fact, she was identified by uh, George Soper, that was a civil engineer that was hired by the owner of one of the luxurious summer residents in Long, in Long Island. In fact, in, in, in this house, there was a, a, um, there was a typhoid case in, in a family and um, he was worried, so the, pro, the, the owner of the, the house was worried that he will not be able to rent again the property if the real cause were, uh, not, would, would not be found. I mean, they knew that, as Virtu mentioned, that the typhoid was associated with water, and actually there was a well in the property, so initially they will look at the, at the water and the well, but that was not... Um, they, they found out that that was not the case. So the, the, the owner decided to hire George Soper to find the real uh, cause. So George Soper acts mainly as an investigator. 
and scrutinized all the possible sources, the water in the well, as I said, the milk, other producers that delivered stuff during that period. And after discarding all of them, he found a clue. So the family uh, uh, where the case was recorded had changed the cook just a week before the outbreak. And the cook was Mary Marlowe. He tracked her down and found that in seven out of eight families she had worked in the, in, in the 10 years before that, there was at least one case of typhoid. But she, was nev she never had any sign of the disease herself. So, as I said, he, George Soper, had found the first healthy typhoid carrier. But he needed proof. He needs to collect biological samples from her to confirm that she was, you know, the, the cause and she was spreading the disease. But before understanding how he, he did this, um, what are exactly an healthy carrier and why they are so important for uh, spreading disease like typhoid? Virtu, can you tell us something more about carriers? Yeah, Max. So a healthy carrier is basically a person who does have the microbe that produces the disease, so it carries in its body, but doesn't show any symptom. So these people feel either completely healthy or have very mild symptoms, and they don't realize that they can spread a deadly disease in some, in some cases, so they do normal life. So think, for example, in, in this situation where you wake up one day not feeling great with a little bit of a runny nose, maybe a little bit of a cough, but you still go to work. So you don't really feel as bad as to stay at home. And because you think it is something that is not very important, you don't even think how easy it is to transmit it to others in your office or your workplace. So if you think as well, as I mentioned for typhoid, that many diseases can start with very general symptoms that are very common to very different diseases. So I think in many cases it's very difficult for us to assess how dangerous we can be for others before sometimes it's too late. So without even realizing it, we become like a storage unit for these bugs while still feeling healthy. And that is why healthy carriers are key in spreading of diseases we involuntarily help the microbes to infect other individuals and spread freely across the population. And as you, Max, were saying before, uh, Mary never had a sign of the disease herself, but she kept making other people sick. But typhoid is not the only disease for which we know of healthy carriers. And as what happened with Mary, there are many other diseases that can spread through people with no symptoms or very mild symptoms. So I'm just gonna give you a couple of examples. And well, I think the most recent and not surprising at, at this point for anyone, uh, that we know that there are people showing no symptoms or very mild symptoms for the severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, or commonly known by everyone now as COVID-19 or coronavirus. So while these people will not have any complication, they can pass the virus to more vulnerable people without even noticing, acting, as I said, as a vehicle for this virus. And 
I'm sure that you know how many people, me among all of those, suffer from oral herpes virus. And you can have cold sores every now and then. I don't know if you know that a high percentage of the population carries this herpes virus, but because most of these infections are asymptomatic, many people who carry the virus don't even know that they have it, and so people will never know. The thing is that the lesions, the, the lesions for this herpes virus are very well recognized, and when we see someone with blisters in their lips, instinctively, we became a little bit more careful more causes of not sharing, for example, eating utensils or caps. But something we don't consider is that a person that is carrying this virus can transmit the virus even if you have never had a lip sore or you do not have an active herpes outbreak. So yes, Typhoid Mary was the first asymptomatic carrier identified in history but as I said, there are many more examples of bugs that can spread through the population from healthy asymptomatic carriers. So some of the diseases are very highly contagious and are very easy to transmit to others, like the herpes virus. And while some of them will not have many complications, we need to keep in mind that others can be lethal. And as we have learned from the current situation, an epidemic and even a pandemic can start with one single case. So going back to the story, Max, feeling healthy as he was, was it easy for George Soper to get a sample from, from Mary? Of course not. I mean, Mary didn't know anything of what we have mentioned now. She was middle-aged cook without any particular education. You know, to tell her, all the story, I mean, all this story didn't make sense to her. She was healthy. She never had any sign of disease. Why should she worry? More importantly, why should other people worry about her? So it's not difficult to imagine that she was more than reluctant to give the samples. Actually, it only happened after Soper convinced the New York, New York Healthy Authorities of the importance to test Mary Mallon. And even in this case, it was um, required the, the police involvement and they essentially forced Mary, uh, Mary to give the samples. And they turned out to be positive. So with identification of the carrier, you would think that the problem was solved, but actually it was just starting. Uh, Mary Mullen case posed a number of questions that were completely new to the health authorities at the time. And as we see in these days, some of them are still waiting for a definitive answer. You know, Mary Mullen was isolated in a cottage at the Riverside Hospital on the North Broadburn Island in New York. But what that fair? After all, she was a healthy individual and it was not her fault that she was carrying the bacteria. So why should she remain in what was essentially a detention state? More importantly, she was only one of the hundreds, if not thousands of typhoid fever carriers in New York alone. What to do with the others? Can we, I mean, should they look for all those carriers? 
Of course, one of the problems was that she was a cook. And being Salmonella typhi, as we learned, a foodborne pathogen, this made Mary Mallon particularly dangerous. In fact, after a few years of her detention, Mary was released under the condition that she was not going to cook for others. Unfortunately, though, after two attempts to change job, since she was struggling to maintain a decent level of living, she decided to go back to what she knew uh, and she was good at. So she went back to her cooking activities. I mean, this is another important point because as we are seeing again these days, often the problem is not just to decide what are the best way to manage healthy carriers, but is to ensure that they will complain with the restriction measures because those measures very often they have a very deep and economical implication. Right, Adam? Uh, yeah, Max. So, um, as I guess we're, uh, we're all living it at the moment, we can all see um, quite clearly that uh, the economic and social impacts of contagious diseases are incredibly complex and there's a, there's a long list of different factors uh, that, that come into play into how these uh, diseases uh, affect different, different countries. So uh, things like the geography of the country, the population density, how uh, equipped its healthcare system is, how authoritative the, the government is and the police are and and kind of the general cultural practices in in countries so um it's, it's it's very complex there's lots of different factors so i'm only going to really mention a few things that are perhaps a little bit obvious and maybe not go into too much detail on some of them um, but while many of these factors are relevant to a lot of contagious diseases the coronavirus itself uh, this coronavirus outbreak is, has some particularly unique aspects that i think are, are worth considering so I think in general, um, I, I imagine more people will begin to realize this, but I'm, I personally wonder how many people in uh, across the world, and in particular maybe the Western world, um, whether, whether we realize how things are not going to be going back to normal anytime soon. And I, I do wonder how different life is going to look um, once this pandemic comes to, a, to an end. Um, I think that we will probably see huge geopolitical changes across across the globe, and uh, and um, I think things at the individual level are, are not going to be anything like the normal that we've been used to. So, as as many of us are under under what's essentially a lockdown at the moment, we've seen a huge curtailing of personal freedom and a large uh, government and police response. And we currently have an unprecedented level of governmental control upon the lives of individual people. Um, so clearly, we can't just go on with our lives as normal at the moment um, because of the risk of um, being an asymptomatic carrier of coronavirus and, and spreading it to more vulnerable people. Um, but we also have to consider um, at what point, I think, it's, I think it's a good point to consider what point is our personal freedom, should we put it above the above society. So again, this is something that I think is largely dependent upon cultural norms and practices. So uh, Western cultures tend to heavily emphasize rights of the, the individual. 
Um, and I guess an extreme example of this is America, where you've seen um, across the news, you've seen uh, videos and interviews of people that are protesting lockdown measures. Um, and while it's necessary for us to put up with these restrictions for a while, um, I, think, I think we do need some restrictions in place. Um, it's also, um, I think we need to be, be careful that we, we don't, ex don't maybe accept um, a level of governmental control over our lives. Maybe we don't accept it as becoming commonplace or a, a, new, a new norm. Um, so I think for, for now, it's definitely something that we need to just put up with and deal with. Um, but but, our, but especially in um, places like the UK, we, we do enjoy a high level of personal freedom. Um, I think that's something that's um, to be celebrated, but also um, we do need to consider that our personal freedoms do do come at a cost to other people. So there's there's a lot of other things going on. So um, we've seen at the start of this outbreak, we saw huge disruptions to food supply chains. Um, we we all saw the, the the panic buying going across in the UK, and and luckily it seems to have largely settled down. Um, but you can still see some disruptions when you go to the shop. Sometimes they don't have they kind of have everything they used to. And while I think uh, the UK and the EU appears to be largely self-sufficient, I think going forward, there's probably going to be some issues with um, crop harvest. There'll be problems of uh, like the logistics of trying to get seasonal workers um, into to harvest crops. We get a lot of crops from places like Italy and Greece. And again, um, there's going to be issues there with trying to get uh, these supplies through. Um, and I think the UN has estimated that it, around 135 million people might die from starvation because of the economic downturn of this coronavirus outbreak. So that raises a question itself as um, at what point are we causing more harm with these lockdown restrictions um, than we're actually trying to prevent? Uh, we've seen, uh, seen thousands of school children sent home, um, schools closed across the UK and across the world. Um, we're seeing a huge shift to online learning, and this is this is already having a great impact um, on the the income of universities across the world. And I, I do wonder if it could fundamentally change the way that we learn, as online courses are clearly accessible to many more students than they are if you have to go to a particular location. Um, but this also raises some other interesting uh, issues. So I have uh, friends in the education sector, and they are concerned so that their role of teachers may be perceived as being unnecessary once the lockdown is lifted. So uh, if the current situation is that we have lots of children and students at home that are learning perfectly fine online and the pupils are still getting the required grade, then it may may cause a shift in kind of what the, the role of the teacher is and how the how that role is perceived. And like I say, some I have I have friends in the education sector that are particularly worried about this, and they're also worried about um, the current situation of um, the knock-on effects of not having children in schools. So uh, these are things like uh, vulnerable children not getting access to school meals and that kind of thing. Um, one thing that we keep hearing about on the news all the time is the economy. Um, so it seems that we're going to see. Uh, it seems likely that we'll see thousands of small businesses disappearing. And I do wonder if these are going to be replaced by large corporations and chains that are able to survive the economic downturn and the effects of being shut for so long. Um, and while I think it is important that we do have some restrictions to try and stop this the spread of this disease, this virus, 
we also have to consider that at some point, if we don't ease the lockdown, there probably will be nothing left for us to save. So we, we already know that uh, poverty, for example, is a huge risk factor. Um, and poverty itself um, can, can directly and indirectly cause, cause many deaths. So it is something to consider that um, while we are trying to stop the spread of this virus, the, the health of the economy is something that needs to be kind of factored into those equations. Um, we've seen many economists warning that we're heading for a recession that's possibly, that's, that some are predicting will be as bad as the Great Depression of the 1920s. We've seen 30 million people unemployed in the USA. Um, I think on the news today, there was a, a large spike in the number of uh, unemployed people in the UK as well. Um, and we've seen some other uh, strange things like the price of US oil dropping to negative $37 a barrel. So that, that to me seems to be quite a, a significant historical moment. Um, we've seen many many sectors uh, complaining about staff shortages, problem of importing goods. We've seen huge declines in manufacturing. So it is quite likely um, that we will be paying for the effects of this pandemic for generations to come. We've seen uh, the airline industry and air travel uh, take a huge hit, um, but we've actually seen the environment, environmental impacts of this, this reduction in flights. And so it seems to me that it's unlikely that air travel will remain the same. Um, we've had many airlines saying they're in financial difficulties, so whether or not we see any new companies, uh, that remains to be seen. But it does also raise the possibility that if we ever have a, an, another pandemic startup or uh, uh, another virus or disease outbreak, um, whether or not we'll see the same kind of rapid cancellation of flights and countries uh, not allowing people in from from places where the disease seems to be most prevalent. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that's something that becomes commonplace. But there's also um, other interesting things to consider. So um, with these disruptions with uh, supply chains, there's been uh, disruptions in the uh, pharmaceuticals that are available um, to us, to our health service. Um, an example of this would be that uh, somewhere like the U.S. gets around 40 to 50 percent of its generic drugs from India. So generic drugs are drugs where there is no license or patent um, on them anymore. So they can pro be produced very cheaply somewhere like India. And India gets all of its raw materials from China. So with the lockdown that's uh, placed in India and has been in place in China, this has caused great um, disruptions to pharmaceutical supply chain. Um, so it is, it is, it does make me think that going forward into the future, um, we'll see maybe, maybe governments and individuals trying to prepare, um, more, more towards self-sufficiency. So I wonder if, um, individual people will have, uh, start having, making sure they've always got small stockpiles of food and other items so that if there is another outbreak in the future, they don't need to, to, to go and panic by. And, and again, um, same with, uh, whether, whether governments and countries will, will take the attitude that it's very important to prepare for things like this. So we see, we see currently we have this ongoing situation in the UK with a lack of uh, PPE or personal protective equipment. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not these things are, are thought about going forward. Um, but I, one thing I am hoping is that um, many of these, we've seen many stories of uh, communities pulling together and really trying to help out uh, the more vulnerable people in society. And we've seen all these, these community networks pop up to care for the for people. So I really hope that those kind of things uh, remain in place once this 
once things return to some sort of some no, some sort of normal. So Max, can you tell us how the story of Mary ends? Yes, of course. So well, I think um, as we said, Mary Mallow Mary Mallon not getting enough support. And I think this is, you know, I think this is also an important point to make. You know, you were talking about vulnerable, vulnerable people. And I mean, I think she was clearly one of those. I mean, she was a single woman living alone. And um, so what, she was not married and she was an immigrant. So, Clearly, she was in this vulnerable condition and not getting any support from the uh, health authority. She uh, went back doing what she was doing well. So she changed her name in Mary Brown and went back to her cooking job. And she started working uh, in the kitchen of the Sloan Maternity Hospital. When, in 1915, after an outbreak of 25 cases of typhoid fever at the hospital, the health authority tracked her down again. And this time, she, won't send, she was sent back to her isolation cottage on the North Brother Island for the rest of her life. So where she lived until um, she actually died for, stri uh, for a stroke different uh, few years later. So. What the story tell us? Um, well, I think one important point that we should uh, keep in mind, and maybe this story uh, that happens hundred years ago can, uh, you know, give us some hints on this, is that science alone or the policy alone cannot solve all the problems. Science and authority needs to work together to maximize the results and minimize the cost for the society, but also keep in mind and in consideration the rights for the single individual. So I think we can just leave a question in the air. How do we think that what we are doing today will be seen in 100 years' time. Thanks, Max. Well, a fascinating question to end this discussion. So I guess that each one of us has a role to play um, to contribute to how society reacts to challenges um, even today. So we need to be aware and informed of the science so that we can understand and contribute with our views to political decisions, as you said. Hopefully, things like this podcast series and, in general, our public events that uh, uh, we do at the University of Aberdeen, this can, keep, uh, can help keep you informed and uh, interested in the science and other aspects of uh, uh, society. So I'd like to thank our three speakers today, Adam, Virtu and Max, for such a great insight into transmissions of infections, past and present. And remind you that if you have any questions for them, please email peru at abdn.ac.uk. And please keep your ears open for our next Cafe Connect podcast. 
Thank you very much and goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.